The title of the message this morning is A New Commandment. Uh, I was going to preach on the uh, triumphal entry, but we just did a few weeks ago here, not too long ago, so I'm not going to go back uh, into that. We're in the uh, 13th chapter of the Gospel of John this morning. And I want to begin reading with verse number 31, if you'll all stand please uh, for the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, verse number 38, 31 to 38. When he had gone out, that is Judas Iscariot, that he received the morsel of bread there according to verse number 30, and he immediately went out. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. The everything's set in motion now for Jesus to go to the cross. So he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. How? Through his obedience. Through his submission to the will of God and absolute obedience to his heavenly Father in this. If God is glorified in him, God will also be glor- glorify him in himself and glorify him at once little children yet a little while i am with you you will seek me and just as i said to the jews so now i say to you where i am going you cannot come a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward Peter said to him Lord why cannot I follow you now I will lay down my life for you Jesus answered will you lay down your life for me (coughs) truly truly I say to you the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times you may be seated John 13 here, verse 31, begins actually the final discourse of the Lord, which will run through John chapter 16. Judas has gone out to betray Jesus to the Jews. And after Judas left, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It's not recorded in the Gospel of John. And it's a very important event, and many commentators are scratching their heads and saying why did he completely ignore his institution of the last supper i i would uh, i would argue that uh, he thought it was unnecessary and the reason is because as we have previously noted john's gospel was written much later than the synoptic gospels and by the time that the gospel of john was written The ordinances of the church were already well established, the ordinances which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's the reason I believe 
that uh, John doesn't touch with it, but touch on it. But he's got a more important subject that he's dealing with right now, and that is this issue of the glorification of the Son and the glorification of the Father through the Son and so forth. We read, we've read a number of, of things about that. So now, uh, and, and part of the issue here it has to do with the foot washing that we looked at pre- in the previous verses. The washing of the disciples' feet here and is, uh, was very important to John to get across the message of how we are to humble ourselves to serve one another and to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Here he is, the king. The king of glory humbling himself to his disciples or, or if we could maybe go back even put it in the framework of a rabbi who has his students. And rabbis were highly regarded. And a man who had a number of students showed how important he was. Jesus had a had had a very large following of people. Not just the twelve. But because he deliberately reduced that number uh, through what uh, many regarded as offensive things. Now now he has the twelve and he humbles himself, takes a, a, a basin out and begins to wash their feet. And that upset them. Peter, speaking for, I believe, all of them, when he says, Lord, uh, you're not going to do this. Why? Because it's an indignant thing. It's, it's not right. You're the master. We're, we're just servants. And Jesus said, if I don't, you have no part with me. Well, now Peter's beginning to understand it a little bit. And he says, well, Lord, if if that's the case, then not just my feet, but my head, my hands. To which the Lord replied, "That's not necessary. You're already clean. See, it's a spiritual thing. Peter, you've already been washed. You're already clean. You're already forgiven. You already belong to me through the new birth. But you're living in this world, and you get your feet soiled." We still live in a sinful world. And we still have the rudiment or the remnant, I should say, the remnant of sin in us. But the interesting thing was, Jesus didn't institute this uh, foot washing to be a, uh, to be a third ordinance in the church. As some... Uh, have thought, but rather it is a demonstration here that Jesus gave, showed them that then he told them they also were to follow. And uh, he, he told them what he was going to do. He told them what he was going to do and that they were to do it likewise. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 23 and 20, uh, 22 and 23, we read, and they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus, as as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, 
and he will be raised on the third day. And they were all greatly distressed. Then in chapter 20, verses 19 and 18 and 19, and then verse 28 we read, See, we are going to, up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he was going to do. He's illustrating that to his disciples. And then in, in Matthew 26 and verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now then Jesus so Jesus then is humbling himself and taking the form of a servant in obedience to the Father to serve those whom the Father had given to him and his service to his own included his death on the cross as a sacrifice to cleanse them from all sin and guilt so that they might then be restored to the Father. That's an amazing truth. And this is how Jesus loved them. He said he loved them there in the first verse. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. How did he love them to the end? By following completely through with the Father's will that he should give himself as a sacrifice for them. And it is this humbling, self-sacrificial service that forms the pattern that Jesus is now giving to his disciples. Verses 14 and 15. It's not washing feet, but loving one another according to the new commandment which he instituted. A new commandment, he said, in verses 34 and 35, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Let me ask you a question. If you were brought before a tribunal or a judge, court of law, and accused of being a Christian, would they have evidence to convict you? American Christians are so self-serving, they can't even begin to understand what self-sacrifice is about. We love our comfort. We love our convenience. And we think if we throw a nickel in the jar, we're being sacrificial. And that nothing could be further from the truth. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you? Well, let's look at it. What does it mean? And, and let, me, let me throw out also a word of hope for you as well. If you truly belong to Jesus, that's not your business. 
to make yourself into that kind of loving person. God's going to do it. And he tells us right here in this passage how he's going to do it. But let's look, first of all, at the new commandment itself, that you love one another. And it's the new command, the new, it's called a new commandment because it's based on the new covenant. And it is a summation of the whole law. This is followed up in the New Testament. And uh, a Jewish, for example, uh, even back in the Synoptic Gospels here, a Jewish lawyer asked Jesus what he regarded to be the great, that is the first or primary commandment of the law. There's ten commandments. Which of these ten commandments, this lawyer was asking him, do you consider to be the number one commandment? And it's interesting how Jesus answered him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your uh, soul, and with all your mind. He's actually quoting here from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. What does the Lord require? But to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus said, this is the great and first commandment. Well, that's not even, it's not even listed in the ten. But then he added, the second is like unto it. And he's citing here from the book of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, concluded here, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament Scriptures. If you want to summarize the entire Old Covenant, it's summarized in these two statements. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And may I also suggest to you that the second one is the proof of the first. How do you show your love for God? How do you show that you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The only way you can show Him you love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to demonstrate that in your obedience to His will and command that you love your neighbor as yourself. So how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, he's going to tell, he's going to tell Peter this. We cannot love God with the whole being unless we love His people just as He loves them. Peter is the model. We talked about Judas and Peter last week. But Peter here is the model for us today. And three times he, in John chapter 21, he was called on to affirm his love. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. As I pointed out in the past there, there have been those who have taken these uh, two words in the Greek, agape and phileo, and have tried to argue that agape is a superior love and phileo is a less, and there may be some truth to that, I don't know, 
but I, but I actually it has really nothing to do with this issue. Peter's telling Jesus, yes, I love you. And it was real love. He meant it. It was not artificial. It was out of his heart. And three times Jesus commands him to affirm this because why did he deny the Lord three times? And for and three times he affirms it and on the last time he's really grieved because the Lord asked him, do you love me? Now the, now the question here is, why did Jesus press this upon him? And I would argue that Jesus' response here to each of these affirmations of love was also given was also met with a charge. He was he told Peter to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's the fisherman. But now he's going to be a shepherd. And really what Jesus was telling him, if you truly love me, you're going to love my sheep and care for them. It's my sheep you're going to be concerned for. One cannot keep this commandment if he selfishly cares for himself. And that's Peter's problem. Peter's full of himself. Paul plainly exhorted the saints in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Count others more significant than yourselves. And look not to one's own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he must, like Peter, or like Jesus, empty himself. That is, Peter must empty himself of, of self totally in order to serve God for the benefit of others. Peter applied then this principle to believers in verses 12 and 13. Verse, verses 3 and 4, he says, don't look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. You say, how can I do this? Well, he tells us. Therefore, my beloved as you have always obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, yeah, we're real good at that. The bosses around, man, we worked like there was no tomorrow. And then the boss is gone, we suddenly are chit-chatting, <laughs> loafing. Paul says, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then listen to this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. You got that all wrong. We don't work for our salvation. It's all of grace. Yes, it is. It's grace that enables the working. Grace doesn't replace working. Grace enables working. You work yourself, you'll never get anywhere. If the grace of God enables you, then you will please God. 
And this is what Paul is telling us right here. Work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. I want to do God's will. And I know that in me is no good thing. And how to perform that which is good, I don't find. I struggle and try and hard and it's hard. And I fear God. I I really fear meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest I have been self-deceived. And so should you. Fear and trembling. But wait a minute, here's the good news. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Working out your salvation is not possible unless God is at first, at first working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that I don't have confidence in God or His Word and I have some doubt or reservation whether or not <laughs> I belong to Him. Oh, I have no, no question about, about it at all. That takes us to the book of, of Hebrews. Ron mentioned Hebrews there in his talk at the table. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we read of the Levitical priests. Did you know you're a priest? We're in the new kingdom right now. We're in the kingdom. When Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not some future thing way off in the distance somewhere. It's here, not right now. The kingdom of God is on earth right now. And we are priests. We're actually we're king priests. Kings and priests. Wow. What a privilege. Are we are we even using that privilege? See, that's the question. But you know, the, we're king priests. So, uh, we're, we're told here in uh, Leviticus chapter 10. I think I have I skipped a, a, a point here. Love is selfless devotion to Christ and His purpose, not feelings and warm relationships. It is necessary to fulfill the Father's goal of bringing a redeemed people back to, his, to Himself and into His presence. In other words, what's your job on earth? It's to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And it is to live in such a way that people will see that you belong to Him and they will, they will take notice of that and you will be able to point them to Jesus. And as I said, Hebrews addresses this goal by entering into what is referred to as entering into the veil. The veil is the thing that separated the holy place from the most holy. 
Nobody was allowed behind that veil. That was where the presence of God was. And if you went behind that veil, that was it. You were dead. The high priest, once a year, could enter in behind that veil to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and gain atonement for the nation. When the high priest went in behind that veil, they actually tied a cord around his ankle so that if he should go in there and displease the Lord in any of his function of carrying out the ministry there, sprinkling the blood, and God should kill him behind the veil, they could drag his body out without having to go in to get it. Think about that. And the Levitical priests, according to Hebrews chapter 10, offered daily, repeatedly, the same sacrifices that pictured Christ, but never themselves could in themselves take away sins. Christ, however, the scripture tells us, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, after which then he sat down at the right hand of God. Not to do it ever again. That means not like the, like the Levitical priests having to offer daily. He just offered a single sacrifice perfected for all time than those who are being sanctified. See, so Hebrew series explains the results and Citing the Old Testament, a new covenant then has been established in which God's laws are written in the hearts and minds of His people and then and their sins fully forgiven. And thus we read in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about priestly function here. Do you understand here what he's what Paul is telling us in Hebrews? What the high priest feared in entering behind that veil on that one time in the year when he sprinkled the blood on the, on the uh, mercy seat. You don't have to fear at all. You have free access. You can go behind that veil anytime. Right into the presence of God. And you're to do so boldly. Because Jesus' blood has provided for you the perfect sacrifice for you to enter in. So now here in the text before us, though, and notice back when he talked about, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. The sanctification process is not done, and it, it is a continuous, continuous process. But in this text before us, Jesus announced his imminent departure and then describes the purpose of that departure to glorify the Father and to be glorified by the Father 
And then verse 33 tells us that the disciples, he told the disciples that they could not follow him at that time. And this statement was in reply to Peter's question back in verse 36, where, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going now, you cannot come. But later you will. So his response to the disciples was, was very different than the Jews because he told the Jews the same thing. He said, I'm going away. But his response to them then uh, was different. Not like he said to the Jews. And that's in the text there. And that was back in John chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin and where I am going you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he said where I'm going you cannot come? Where they got that out of that I do not know. But the Jews regarded suicide as as the ultimate rebellion against God for which there is no forgiveness. They said, we're not going to offend God by committing suicide. So maybe he is. They despised and rejected him. And this announcement then of his departure provided the occasion then for his introduction of the new commandment. Think, now, think this thing through. What is the new commandment? And how is it related to Jesus' sacrifice? And then how how are we to follow through with it? That's the question. And what he's doing here is showing his own how they should live in his absence. I'm going away and you can't follow me now. But later you will. So it's, it's, it's this new commandment. So that brings us then to the the second thing here, the new commandment, its purpose. Notice that in verses 31 to 34 here, but it's summed up in this. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. Christ evidenced then the old covenant here is moving forward. It's being fulfilled. It's being completed in the new covenant. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. And this is why John argued that this commandment was not a new one, but an old one. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We looked at that last week. I'm giving you a new commandment. Yet it's not a new commandment, but an old one. Yeah, it is old. It was given on Mount Sinai. And repeated in the Old Covenant. And Jesus glorified the Father by making it possible for the people of God to obey that commandment. Jesus glorified the Father by becoming the true Israel and then enabling His fathers to do what the Old Covenant people failed so miserably to do. Remember again, 
Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. <clears throat> That's old covenant. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But now it's possible because God is at work in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The old covenant wasn't thrown out for the new covenant. The, the old covenant was fulfilled in the new covenant. In Christ. And then through Christ in His people. God, Christ glorified the Father by becoming the true Israel and then enabling His followers to do what the old covenant people failed to do so miserably. So the question is, how is God to be glorified? And the answer is very simple. God is glorified by Jesus' full submission to the will of the Father. Further, in Christ, His followers will glorify God by their obedience to His will, which He enables them because of His sacrifice. So how does, how does one love another in the will of God? And here's the, here's the problem. We say, you know, I, I want, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out and I'm going to love people. I want to tell you something. You're going to find that is almost impossible. You want to do it? Forget it. For one thing, people aren't lovable. I don't care who they are. Now, there's some people that we get along with better than others, and we can have more, more of a warm relationship with them than others. But we're always on guard. I don't want to say something wrong. I want to do something wrong that will upset them and offend them. Or maybe you're one who says, I don't care whether I offend them or not. And then you do. You offend them. And they're offended. And then, they're, then the relationship is broken again. And some, there are some people that just cannot live without being offended. They're constantly being offended. How do you love people like that? When you know that you can't do anything without offending them in some way or another. Whether you do so deliberately or unintentionally, it makes no difference. They're still going to be offended. They, people like one thing and they don't like something else. And you can't please anybody. I mean, just live in a family a little while. <laughs> what I'm talking about. So when Jesus gives me a command to love one another, that sounds so warm and fuzzy. <laughs> oh, yes. Christians are to love one another. Oh, yes. <laughs> and so what, what, they, what the, the world calls loving one another is compromise. You just do what you... You, you just try to please them. You break, you break your back trying to please them. And then you go crazy trying to do that. How are in the world can you please everybody? You can compromise all of your convictions and you'll never please them. We've got the church today 
trying to compromise with the world and bringing all the worlds in, right into the church here. Yeah, well, but you know, we know you. you we know you're a, uh, you're an offense to God, but uh, we're going to love you anyway. Huh? See, here's the problem. Well, let me let me give you let me explain it, and, and then we'll see it illustrated here in the life of Peter. So hang on. What does love one another in the will of God mean? The Old Testament teaches the primary duty of all humans made in the image of God is, as we have noted in the introduction, to love the Lord with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the mind, with all the strength. In other words, they are to love God with their whole being. The problem with fallen humans is that they naturally love themselves first. They seek to love the Lord only as it benefits them. I'll love the Lord as long as it benefits me. By the way, that's idolatry. We say, well, we're past that idolatry. Don't have those images sitting around anymore. Oh, no. Those images were just extensions of, of the pe of people. <laughs> They're just extensions of people. So what we done, we've done is we've gotten rid of the images and we've just gone to the original source ourselves. We're our own idols. A.W. Tozer eloquently expressed this truth here, the problem of love. He asks the question, what hinders us? And the answer is usually given, you know, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What hinders us from doing this? And the answer is usually given that we are simply cold. Uh, yeah, we're, we're not, we don't have a warmth in our hearts. We got to get, we got to get some evangelist in here to warm us up, to fire us up, get us all warm again. Then maybe we'll love the Lord like we're supposed to. But that doesn't explain it. According to Tozer here, there is something more serious than coldness of heart. Something that we may that that may be back of what of that coldness and be the cause of its existence. What is it? What is it? What but the presence of a veil in our hearts. We've got a veil. I'm going to add to Tozer here. The veil isn't to separate us from the God. It's to separate God from us. It's a veil. A veil not taken away as the first veil was. And he's referring to that which Christ, remember on his on the cross there, the veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom. An impossible task. But supernaturally done because Jesus Christ took it away. But Tozer says that which remains still Shuttering out the light and hiding the face of God from us. It's not that we 
are afraid to go into the veil. It's that we don't want God out here. We want to keep him back there. Keep that veil. It is the it is the veil of our fleshly fallen nature living on unjudged within us, uncrucified and unrepudiated. It is woven of the fine threads of the self-life, the hyphenated sins of the human spirit. They are not something we do. They are not something we do. They are something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and their power. To be specific, the self-sins are these self-righteousness, self-pity. I'm good. I don't need God to be good. I'm good. I'm good within myself. I've judged myself to be good. I'm a good person. I'm good. Self-righteousness. Self-pity. Oh, why would hurt that hurt? I'm going to go shut my thumb now. My wife hurt me. My kids hurt me. My neighbor hurt me. My pastor hurt me. Church member hurt me. I'm going to sell, I'm going to go suck my tongue for a while. I'm going to go hide in the closet. Yeah. Self-pity, self-confidence. I don't need God, I can do this myself. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I'm I I can do it my own, on my own. I have confidence in my ability to live my life to the glory of God. Self-sufficiency. I don't need the Bible. I don't need the Spirit. I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. Self-admiration. Yeah. And everybody ought to know it. I am a good person. And you better see it too. Self-admiration, see? Then self-love, which is the root of it. And a host of of others like them, he says. And this is in the pursuit of God. I would recommend the book. Christ then provided his followers with an example of selfless giving of himself for others. And Jesus told the disciples to love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. How did he do it? Also, it is necessary to understand that Jesus loved those he loved to the end, which means the, to, the, to a purposed result or to a purposed consequence. And by this shall all people know that you are my disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if I've set my love on you and I'm going to love you to the end, then you're going to be exactly what I want you to be. And it's not up to you. It's up to me. God says, I'm going to do it. Whoa. Now how? This is the question. And this is what, this is what takes us into the, to the new commandment illustrated. 
He said, I will lay down my life. Or, or excuse me, he asked Peter, will you lay down your life for me? This is interesting. And these two sections in John are joined together for the express purpose of using Peter here to illustrate what it means to love others like Jesus loves us. So let me, let me take you through it here. Very quickly. Number one, John employed here Peter to illustrate why one must die to self before one is able to love the Lord with all of his being and consequently to love others rightly. First, Peter first then experience, uh, experience with, with Jesus is clear back in John chapter, or excuse me, Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And it is of great significance to the plan. When Jesus was calling his first disciples, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but when, but I'm going to tell you the story. When Jesus was first calling his, <coughs> his disciples, he went to the Sea of Gennesaret and got into Simon Peter's boat and then asked him to put out a little so he could teach the people. There's a natural amplification of the voice and all. In that situation, there was a large crowd. He could speak to them easily. They're sitting out in the boat a little bit. And Peter, so Peter did that. And so afterwards then, to pay Peter back for the privilege of using his boat here for, for uh, his teaching purposes, he told him to put out into the deep and let down the nets. And uh, Peter kind of protested. He said, Lord, we fished all night and have taken nothing. We're fishermen. We, we're experts at this. You're just a teacher. You don't know about these things we do. And I can tell you, going out in the deep right now isn't going to profit anybody, first of all, because it's not time that the fish are going to be there. They head for the bottom when it gets warm. Jesus said, no, you go, you go out there. But Peter knew in his heart, nevertheless, at your bidding, I'll do this. And uh, they let down the nets, and immediately the net was full of fish. So many fish there that they had to call their fellows from the other boat to come help them to get it in. Filled that boat with fish. At a time of the day when you don't catch fish. And when, he, when that happened, and that boat was filled with fish, Peter dropped to his knees and cried out, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He recognized he was in the presence of God himself. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. And Jesus' response to Simon was, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. You hear, you hear that? He told him right here at the beginning. Yeah, you're a fisherman. You might be a good one. But your fishing days are over. From now on, you're going to be catching men. And what is the response? It says, and when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
That's all Jesus wants. He said, just follow me. You leave everything and follow me. What does that mean? It's just exactly what it says. <clears throat> Only when Peter's self-life was destroyed in the humiliation that followed his denial of Christ was the Lord able to build that true humility and submission into his life. Do you hear that? In order for Peter to be that person that Jesus said in the beginning, you're going to be now a fisher of men. For Peter to be the fisher of men, he had to die to himself. That's the process of sanctification. And Peter, and uh, on that night, and that very night here that Jesus said this to him, See, notice what he said. I'm going to lay... Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Boy, what arrogance. What self-confidence. He thought he was the big shot. Jesus said, no, Peter. I hate to tell you this, but Peter has to die. His self-confidence has to die before you'll be able to follow me. And I'm going to tell you, will you lay down your life for me? You, you think you're so hot? To, I mean, what happened there in the garden? Man, he whips out his sword and starts whack, wicking, whacking off ears. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve Jesus. Put that sword away. You don't savor the things that be of God. Hmm. You're trying to take this on on your own. It's not going to work. So what happens? He's there in the fire there. Now he's afraid. And what it is it? It's the it's the self life and the fear of pre, of self preservation. He wants. Now he he knows now that every everybody's in trouble. The leader's in trouble. He's going in on to trial. And probably crucified. And now his disciples are also going to be caught. So, hey, I know you. You're one of his, you're one of his disciples. No, no. I don't know the man. Your speech betrays you. You're a Galilean. I don't know the man. Cuss, cuss. Throw in a few swear words there. That'll, that'll throw them off. And, and finally, the last one. Man, he said, I do not know what you are talking about. That's a lie. He lied. And immediately, while he was speak, speaking, the rooster crowed. And I, lo I love what Luke says there in chapter 22, verse 62. He turned, the Lord, the Lord turned. He was being led out of that, out of that, uh, before the, the, the Sanhedrin. He was going to be led over to, to Pilate. And while they're leaving there, they've got him bound. The Lord turned and looked at him. And he wept bitterly. Peter died to himself that night. 
said, I can't do it. I'll never do it. And now I've just betrayed my Lord. Peter's remorse and his repentance and restoration were necessary to God saving him to serve him. You listen now, do you hear that? Because that's exactly what's what has to take place with you too. You have to die to self. And God will use different means to bring people to die to themselves. But I want to tell you something. Jesus, When Jesus says He loves us to the end, He means exactly what He says. And He will accomplish in you what He purposed in His sacrifice to accomplish in you. And it will be done if you belong to Him. Because God is at work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure doesn't mean we don't still have the flesh and we don't fight the flesh and we don't have this. And, and so there's remorse and repentance always going on and restoration is always going on. And it's necessary to God's saving a people to serve Him. And what Peter experienced, all Christ's own will experience and none will die to self on his own. You can't say, well, okay, I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to love people like Jesus wants me to love them. I won't work. John here records Peter's restoration there in John chapter 21 and we're going to save that one for later. But let me close. I got three, three lessons here very quickly for you. Number one, like Peter, all God's children will be subject to divine discipline. Listen to Romans chapter 12. We, we, we said, ah, that, that doesn't apply to me because I don't sin the kind of sins that God would have to discipline me. I'm a good boy. <laughs> In your struggles, this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 to 11. In your struggle against sin. In your struggle against sin. You know, the sad part about it is hey, there's too many modern Christians that aren't struggling at all. It's not struggling. What's the problem? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the... For the Lord disciplines the one he, uh, he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God's got to clean up the self-life. For what son is there uh, whom the Father does not discipline? Because if you belong to your Heavenly Father, He's going to take you to the woods yet. And if you are without the discipline of a father, this father, which all sons endure, then are you illegitimate and not sons? You're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined, and disciplined us and we respected them. Feared them. We feared them. I feared my father. I respected him. I loved him, but I feared him. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed be- as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. So how is Jesus bringing you to deny self and to walk in His life for loving service to others? That's the question. And you need to answer that question. Then secondly, the gauge for the process of the progress of discipline is our loving others in the biblical sense. See, this is what should characterize the church. is a love for each other that's such that I, I'm, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. What can I do for you to selflessly give myself for you? And then thirdly, loving service to, in Christ is loving is the, really the core of the Christian life. I have here 16 references. I'm going to just read them real quickly and I know we, I've gone a little longer than, than I normally would. But I'm going to share these with you. John, John, this is later now, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 17, 15, 17. These things I command you, that you love one another. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another for the, for the uh, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians chapter five. Uh, I keep the commandments. Uh, yeah, you know, somebody says to you, "Oh, you know, uh, I'm going to go to heaven because I keep the commandments." Well, read them that verse and say, "Do you really love others so so that you fulfill the whole law? Because that's what it is." Galatians chapter five verse thirteen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Ephesians 4.2 With all humility and gentleness, with patience, and bearing with one another in love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12 May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone write to you for yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stir up, stir one another up to love and to good works. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22 Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a, for a sincere Brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a, and a humble mind. First John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is the commandment that we... Believe in the name of 
of the Son, Jesus, His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. For everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Then 1 John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In 1 John, or excuse me, 2 John chapter 1, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, and he's talking to the church, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one that we have from the beginning, that we love one another. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we, we express to you our, the, the utter impossibility that this command should ever be fulfilled in any one of us or in this body as a church save through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, I pray as with Peter, take us through the process. Peter's self-confidence had to be taken away. Jesus prayed for him. He said, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Oh, Father, I pray, God, do that work in us. Even if it involves going out and weeping bitterly. In repentance and remorse to seek your face, to become the people that we ought to be and need to be in these days. Lord, we're living in such dark days. Oh, I tell you, I ask God, purify your church. Purify your people. Purify me. And I just ask this in, for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God. Amen.